Well, of course, tonight is Bible Q&A, so make sure you have a Bible that you can uh, turn in. We'll be going to a number of different passages to uh, try to address the questions that are asked. Uh, Just as we kind of lead into it, just one quick uh, funny story from this morning. Uh, Those of you who are here remember the opening illustration, the humorous story about the lady upset that someone sat in her seat, etc. Well, this morning at the start of the second service, I was sitting right where Pastor Jeremy is and several of the praise team, we were there, second service. And the praise team, of course, had been in the first service. They sang and they heard the message. And so we were sitting there, and a lady came in for the second service and came down and came by and said, you guys are sitting in my seat. <laughs> and we just looked at each other and said, she has no idea what's coming in this, this message. So, um, <clears throat> so anyway, when I began the message and began with the illustration, I made sure that I did not make eye contact <laughs> with her and just left it alone there. So... <laughs> Amazing the little things that coordinate sometimes and happen, all right? All right, so let's jump in. You have your Bible, and uh, some of the passages we'll turn to. Some of them I'll just mention, etc. Um, this is a, pass- a question coming off of 1 Peter 3, uh, the, the passage in verse 9 where it talks about the Lord is not willing that any should perish. He's long-suffering, etc. Peter explaining why uh, the Lord is delaying his coming, etc., And then uh, the question is this, we are waiting for the church to be complete before Jesus returns. We are told he doesn't want any to perish, but as the church grows and nears that day when it will be complete, on that same day, scores of babies are likely to be born who are lost, thereby, in theory, uh, canceling out any growth to near us to that completion. So how will the church ever reach the point where the Lord says, it is done, here I come. I'm thinking it may have to do with babies uh, being not yet able to be held accountable to a choice to follow Jesus, automatically included, etc. Question mark, question mark, question mark. Well, uh, I appreciate the question, and it is one of the types of things that, especially this was a dear mom who turned this in, that moms would wrestle with. Uh, It was just their love for their children, love for children in general, so it's understandable. But you know, I'll, I'll mention a couple thoughts, but as I read this a couple times through the afternoon, I couldn't help but think of Deuteronomy 29, 29, which says, uh, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, and those that are revealed are for us and for our children, that we, paraphrasing here, that we can do the will of God. In other words, there are just some things God doesn't tell us. He's chosen to reveal a lot to us, but if you, you know, if you were to illustrate it, uh, taking a large circle, you can't circumscribe God's knowledge because it's infinite, but if you could draw a circle around God's knowledge, and say, this is what God knows. Out of all that God knows, there's a portion that he has chosen to reveal to us in his word. And there are just questions that we won't get answers to this side of eternity. In other words, how is all this going to play out? How is this going to flesh out? Uh, We do know that Paul does use the phrase in Romans 9, 10, and 11 that the fullness of the Gentiles, in other words, there does seem to be this idea that that, that, that God is going to continue working with Gentiles, which is the era we're in, and saving Gentiles. And once God has saved all the Gentiles he has purposed to save, then he is going to, uh, as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ rise first. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus will ever be with the Lord. So the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, the church is gathered, and God will turn back toward 
fulfilling his promises to the Jewish people, and that's Daniel's 70th week, etc. So I understand the question. In other words, if there, there is this if there is this, um, this certain fullness that God has purposed to save Gentiles, how is that ever going to really come along? Because there's continually babies that are born that maybe they're a part of God's plan to save them, etc. But just understand this, that, that uh, when that event happens, 1 Thessalonians 4, it does not mean that any children who are here, that they, they, therefore they have no opportunity to be redeemed because still time will go on and again, God will have to unravel that. And, you know, this is a question sometimes people ask. Well, what about when the great gathering together under Jesus in the air, the commonly called the rapture? Um, you know, what about um, uh, the, the issue of children? Uh, their parents, are they taken? What about the children? Do they go? Again, Deuteronomy 20, 29, 29, I think, is the answer. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Those that are revealed are for us to, to do the will of God. So uh, rather than worrying about what God doesn't tell us, we just need to be concerned about what he does and be faithful to that. So I um, appreciate you wrestling with it, but I don't know that there's really an answer that you can give scripturally from that. All right, next question says this. Pastor Brian, does God still judge entire nations for their lawless rebellion and sin as he did in Old Testament times? Or is his judgment focused on the individual and their personal choices in the present church age? Or is it some combination of the two? And I think the answer to that is the, the final statement there. It is probably a combination of the two in this sense. God still may judge a nation for its ungodliness or its ungodly leaders or for things it does. There's no reason to believe that God still doesn't do that. The, the prophet Isaiah says God, you know, he raises up kings, he puts down kings, he raises up nations, he puts down nations. So uh, certainly God may do that. However, what's important to emphasize is that a person's eternal destiny is an individual judgment. In other words, even if God were to, let's say God were to judge our nation for our ungodliness, God were to allow another nation, like he did with the Jewish people, to come in and, and devastate our nation, destroy our nation, take people captivity, etc., uh, God may choose to do that on a nation for its ungodliness, but that doesn't mean that uh, the individuals within it still don't have an individual judgment with him as far as their eternal destiny. So it wouldn't change that. And if God does allow that type of thing, whether it be for our nation, just like it was with the children of Israel, uh, yes, sometimes the righteous suffer the consequences when the unrighteous in that. Uh, the, the righteous with the ungodly. Uh, so if our nation experiences the judgment of God in some form, those of us who are his people may experience some, some difficulty, some adversity. Uh, but, but when it comes to your eternal destiny and your own relationship to the Lord, that's always an individual matter and never sort of a broad brush. Well, you happen to belong to the nation of Assyria. You happen to belong to the nation of Russia, America, therefore, if I bring judgment there, then you're all condemned. That's not the case at all. Still an individual type of, of judgment issue. All right, next question. Uh, turn over to Revelation chapter 6. It's not really on this passage, but um, Revelation chapter 6. The question is this. Um, is there any biblical evidence that those who have died and gone to heaven can look down and see what's going on with us here on earth? Are they aware of what's going on here and now? And uh, to answer your question, is there biblical evidence? Yes. Is it conclusive or definitive? 
No, I don't know that we could say this is automatically normative. It may be, but there is, to answer the question, yes, there is biblical evidence. And here's just one passage. We could also look at the Luke 16 passage. You remember the story that Jesus told of the rich man, Lazarus, and then the one in Hades, the one in Abraham's bosom, and the conversation going on between the two? Well, you also have something similar in Revelation 6. Uh, John says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. So you hear, here you have these martyrs who are under the altar and they know that what's going on on earth means God hasn't stepped in to judge and avenge their blood. So they are aware of that. Now, again, the question is, can we be absolutely certain that this is normative? In other words, this is uh, in the context of the future tribulation period. Does that mean that this is the case today? Well, again, this added with what Jesus taught in Luke 16 about the awareness of the, of the, uh, the uh, rich man in Hades calling for someone to go to his brothers lest they end up in the same place and, and so forth. Um, so if you ask my opinion, is there... Is that a probability? I would say yes. Uh, could I say definitively that there is scriptural teaching? No, there are these illustrations or examples. But we can't, we can't dogmatically state that this means that people in heaven do see what's going on with us here on earth, that they are aware of it. Uh, I lean toward that there is some awareness um, but based on these passages, but I would have to acknowledge that they are not teaching definitively that is the case. All right, we're in the book of Revelation, so turn over to chapter 14. This is not, again, on this specifically, but um, Revelation 14. The question says this, uh, Pastor Brian, Psalm 139 seems to indicate that God is everywhere, omnipresent. So is God in the lake of fire? Does God's presence abide in hell? Our tendency probably would be to answer that by saying, no, God is not in hell because God is holy, separate from sin, etc. However, I think we should be careful about assuming that is the case. Here's a very interesting passage in the book of Revelation, verse four, uh, chapter 14, uh, where in verse 9, the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire in brimstone, and brimstone, watch this now, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. We usually describe hell as being away from the presence of the Lord. And we, we know what we mean by that. That's accurate. I mean, in the sense that a person who is in hell is, we talk about spending eternity apart from Christ. That's true in the sense of apart from him, fellowship, communion, enjoying the, the bliss of the relationship. But this passage, and this isn't the only one, but this is one of the strongest ones, this passage really causes us to wrestle through, okay, we understand that people who are in hell will be alienated from Christ as far as fellowship and relationship. But you ask a very good question. If the Lord, God, the Father, Holy Spirit, God, the Son, if they are omnipresent, doesn't that not mean that there is some way in which, some sense in which, 
their presence would still be in hell. Not a comforting presence, uh, not a fellowship presence. Um, so in answer to your question, I don't know if I feel comfortable just saying, you know, again, definitively, dogmatically, yes, God is in hell. But a passage like this shows us that maybe the way we think of it sometimes isn't all that accurate, uh, that God is completely unattached or, or, or uh, not present in any way in hell. So wrestle with this passage in relation to that, and you're, you, you pick a good passage, Psalm 139, about the omnipresence of God, that there is no place that uh, a person could be apart from his presence. All right, next question. And again, as I mentioned, every month we have, uh, uh, during the Q&A, it's a neat opportunity. We have a lot of little ones who ask questions. And they'll come up to me and they'll write out their question and, or they'll have their parent write it out, set her hand. And so we have a few of those tonight. And here's one of them. Uh, how do we know, it's cute, how do we N-O, not K-N-O-W, how do we know if Jesus is real? Uh, well, that, that question, actually, you've got to kind of go back a, a diff, uh, another level. Uh, where do we... This is the obvious answer. Where do we find out about Jesus and learn about Jesus and, and, and come to know about Jesus? It's obviously in Scripture. So a, a question that would be deeper than this one or maybe back another level is how do we know Scripture is real? Because if Scripture is real or if Scripture is authoritative, if Scripture is accurate, then we know what it says is accurate. So really maybe the best answer to your question is is to uh, go back another level and talk about the reliability of Scripture. So I, I would answer the question, just a simple answer, how do we know if Jesus is real? My answer would be the testimony of the proven, reliable, authoritative Word of God. Because it declares about Jesus. Of course, then that begs the question, well, how do we know Scripture is real? And, uh, uh, you know, there's se several lines of evidence, depending on your view uh, of course, of apologetics, how much of an evidentialist you are, presuppositionalist, etc. But there are many lines of evidence that verify the claims of Scripture over 3,800 times, by the way, over 3,800 times, in one way or another, this book claims to be from God, claims to be the Word of God, claims to be authoritative, over 3,800 times. That would be examples such as, thus saith the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, or the Lord spoke to Noah and said, it's over 3,800 different ways and times this book claims to be from God. Claims to be God's book, the Word of God, authoritative, etc. Now, those who would not want to grant that immediately cry foul. They say, oh, that's self-testimony. Uh, that's, you know, that's not, that's not admissible in the, in the sort of the court of, of whether or not this is really the Word of God. That's just the, the self-claims of the Bible. And my response to that is always this. Listen, if in a court of law, if you are on trial, you have the right to take the stand. You have the right to defend yourself. You have the right to get up there and make any claim you want. And it is the opposition's responsibility to prove you're wrong. Right? Okay. Well, the Bible is, is on trial by a lot of people. They say this isn't the Word of God. It has a right to claim, which it does 3,800 times, that it's from God. So therefore, it is the responsibility of the opposition to prove that its claims are invalid, which cannot be done. As try as people have, have uh, as they may try, they cannot disprove this book. And so that's where I would go back to. This book is the Word of God. It speaks of Christ. So how do we know if Jesus is real? 
because we know that this is the Word of God, and the Word of God tells about Jesus, His pre-existence, His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, etc. And the statements made about Jesus in this book are authoritative, they are accurate, they are definitive, and they are uh, inspired, inerrant. You could continue giving terms. So that would be the answer. You go back to the reliability of the proven Word of God. All right, next question, Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Verse 28, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Verse 28, Matthew 11, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And here's the question, very good one. If the life of faith is so often co- compared to resting, Isaiah 40, 31, Matthew 11, 28 through 30, why does it always feel like so much work? That's a good question, isn't it? It's an honest question. Uh, because, and the answer is, is because the life of faith is a lot of work. Let me explain so that you don't think there's a contradiction. The Bible clearly talks about laboring in a couple of ways. One, in the Christian life, we labor. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. That's work. I make myself do what I don't always want to do. What my body doesn't want to do, I make it do what is right, not what it feels like. Uh, Not only is there that kind of work, but there is the kind of work or labor in the Christian life of serving the Lord. That's why Paul could say in Galatians 6, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. And Paul says, I am what, 1 Corinthians 15, I am what I am by the grace of God. His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. So you say, why does it feel like so much work? Because the Christian life is work. Living the Christian life, serving the Lord, it is work. So how does this then compare to your statement, your presupposition, which is an accurate one, that the life of faith is so often compared to resting? And I think here's one of the key distinctions. I read this entire passage to you of Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Twice Jesus talks about rest. And it's interesting to note that in the context, Jesus is speaking to a group of people who are basically taught you had to earn your salvation through laborious effort. You had to keep all of the laws of the scribes and the Pharisees. You remember what Jesus said in chapter 23 of Matthew where he rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees and he says, you put burdens on people's shoulders that there's no way they can carry and you don't help them with one finger's worth of effort to assist them. You just, you load people down with burdens that they cannot carry. So in that context, in the context of you have to earn your salvation, you have to work for it, you have to labor to gain merit with God, Scripture repeatedly says, you know what? It is simple as faith and just resting in that faith. So there is a valid rest, a resting from your work. That is, a resting from your labors to think you can earn salvation. But it doesn't mean that the Christian life is a passive life. Yes, it is. The life of faith is so often compared to resting because we can cease from our own works. We don't have to think that our efforts, our our labors will get us into heaven. We just cease from those. We rest and simply rest or trust by faith in Christ. But like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 
I am what I am by the grace of God, but His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored. In other words, I experienced this rest. I experienced this grace of salvation. And in that context or flowing out of that, I labored to live for Christ. And it is, it is a labor. Not saying that there's no resting in Christ as a Christian. Certainly there is. But you're, uh, you're not inaccurate. The person who puts this question together, you're not inaccurate in, in seeing that there's sort of a, almost appears to be a contradiction, which is not a contradiction because the Scripture speaks of resting and it speaks of laboring. All right, next question is uh, 1 Kings chapter 10. 1 Kings chapter 10. Verse 14 says, The weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. And so there, here's the question, 1 Kings 10, 14, gold for Solomon for one year, 666 talents. Revelation 13, 18 says the number of the mark of the beast is 666. Is there any connection? And I would say I don't believe there is any connection um, it just happens to be the same number because, again, you're getting it in talents. But uh, if we were actually more translating this over into our culture or our context, we wouldn't use this weight because we don't really even know what a talent is. So, in fact, some of your translations may not say that. They may say something like 25 tons. That's, that's a fairly accurate equivalent. So it just happened to be using that measurement. You probably could do this with a lot of things. In other words, find some type of measurement, whether you're using centimeters or inches or something, and come out with 666 on things. So I, I don't think we need to push that and look for something on those um, because measurements, you could, depending on what increment of measurement you use, you could, uh, with a lot of things, come up with uh, number connections. But, so I don't think there's any connection between this and the statement there in Revelation 13. Our next question says this, uh, why do people give their testimony before they are baptized? Referring to our practice, what we do, if you've ever been to one of our baptisms, you know that is what we ask people to do. I should say it is what we ask. We, uh, we would not absolutely require it. Uh, and what I mean by that, if someone just really could not do that, but they really were a genuine believer, um, we would grant, it would have to be unusual circumstances, and I'll explain why in just a second, but we would grant that possibly we, we uh, would simply ask them a couple questions. Uh, do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins? Yes. Have you taken him as your personal Lord and Savior? Yes. And then we would baptize them. It would have to be very unusual circumstances because of the answer I'm going to give here. So why do we ask people to give their testimony before they are baptized? And here's the answer. In the first century, you might say, well, I don't really read them doing that in the Bible. In the first century, it was clear what someone was saying when he or she was baptized. Everybody knew exactly what they were saying. They were saying, I am renouncing my old life, and I am now a follower of Jesus Christ. I am committed to him. Today, that is just not the case. There is so much religious baggage attached to baptism today, so much cultural baggage attached to baptism today, so much confusion, so many assumptions that we aren't willing to let those assumptions be interpreted through everybody's grid who's sitting out there. So basically what I say to people when they, are, they come to be baptized and they, they're putting their testimony together, I say this, I say, you need to realize that there will be people sitting out there that don't know why you're doing what you're doing. You need to tell them. 
It could be very simple. You don't have to go on a long time. It may be three sentences. You know, last year I was in a home Bible study and in the process I understood the gospel that I'm a sinner and I repented of my sin and I accepted Jesus Christ. That's why I'm here tonight. It could be that simple. But at least then you don't allow people sitting out there to assume whatever they want to assume by what's going on there. You don't let them assume, oh, that is the way I can have my sins forgiven. I can get up there and get my sins washed away by being dunked in water. So we don't want to allow that. We don't want the confusion, the assumptions, the cultural baggage, the religious baggage that's attached to baptism in our culture to just be unaddressed. So I always just tell people, you you just need to make it clear you know Christ. If you say that, whatever you want to say in addition to that in your testimony, you can go longer, you can go shorter, but you just need to make it clear that you already know Christ. You're not doing this to become a Christian. You're not doing this to get saved. You're not doing this to get your sins forgiven, to get your sins washed away. You're doing this because you belong to Christ. If you say that, then that clears the record. And then, then people aren't just drawing their own conclusions, etc. So that is the answer of why we ask people to give their testimony for their baptized. Why it wasn't in the first century. Because again, everybody knew exactly what was being stated. By the way, interestingly, even today, in Israel, among Jewish people, Jewish people who don't even know the gospel, really, know exactly what baptism means. That's why a Jewish person who says he or she has come to believe Jesus is the Messiah, the family doesn't like it, okay? They are very uncomfortable. If one of their family members says, I believe Jesus is the Messiah, if that person gets baptized, they're cut off. It is the baptism that really is the mark that says, even if they don't say it in their testimony, I am now a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. I believe his death on the cross was for my sins, and I, am, I belong to him. That's what it means still today in modern Israel, in that Jewish culture. They know exactly what baptism means. Uh, people in our culture don't know what it means, or many don't. So that's why we ask people to uh, give their testimony before they're baptized. All right, next question says this. Um, let's turn to Matthew 25. This is not on Matthew 25, but I, wanna, I, want, I, I, I quote this verse fairly often, but I, I want you to see it. Um, <clears throat> Matthew 25. For the, the question is this. Can you help me understand the justice of God in light of hell? How can seemingly good people spend an eternity in hell after only a lifetime of sins. Well, several comments on this. First of all, you say, how can seemingly good people, and I know what you mean by that, maybe someone who's a nice neighbor and makes cookies for the kids in the neighborhood, etc. How can seemingly good people? Um, But I would ask you this question. How can someone be seen as good when they reject, defy, ignore, rebel against, use whatever term you want, their creator. The very one who's given them life and breath in their nostrils. And to ignore him, to thumb their nose at him, to defy him, to just have no regard for him, not want to know him, that's not a good person. Maybe there's some goodness on a human level, again, nice to their neighbor, etc. That's not a good person. So first of all, you need to understand uh, the wretchedness of a heart that wants nothing to do with Creator God and Redeemer God. That would be the first thing I would say. 
Secondly, I would say this. People are eternal. From the moment they have life, they are eternal. So they will spend eternity somewhere. And so it's, it's that they, they are eternal. They'll spend eternity somewhere. And if they don't turn to the Lord, then the only option is for them to spend eternity in hell. A third thing I would say is what, and this is the, the verse I want to show you. I want you to see with your own eyes what Jesus said here. It wasn't his main point, but it is very significant. In verse 41, Jesus is talking about a future judgment of Matthew 25, 41, known as the sheep and goat judgment. And he says... Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire. Now here's the phrase I want you to see. Prepared for the devil and his angels. Beloved, I think, personally, that is such a significant statement by Jesus. It is so important that we understand hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. But make no mistake about it, people will go there. People will end up there, but they will choose to go there. No one, dismiss this idea from your mind forever, no one will ever stand before God and say, or be able to say, God, if I had only known, if you'd only given me a chance, if you'd only shown me, I would have loved you and followed you and believed in you. That will never happen. The problem is not with any inability on God's part to get the message to people. It doesn't matter if they're in the deepest, dark, continent, uh, you know, the dark jungles of Africa or some other third world country. It doesn't matter. God has no problem getting the message to people. People are not going to go to hell because they've never heard or because they wanted to but never were given the chance. People will go there, as John 3 says, the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So, uh, people will end up in hell, even though it was created for the devil and his angels, and so you start the question really on the right, sort of the right angle. How, help me understand the justice of God. Let me just add one other thought on this question. For us, we tend to think, we tend to think, well, even the way your question is worded here, you know, how can people spend eternity in hell with only a lifetime of sin? So from our skewed perspective, we would say, well, they lived 80 years, they should spend 80 years in hell. By the way, that's why the Catholic doctrine of purgatory is so uh, popular. It just makes sense from a human standpoint. Just let them suffer for a while, then let them out. I mean, it may make sense on a human level. It's not biblical. But, uh, you know, that, that's the way we might tend to think. Or why, why doesn't God, just because he's a God of love, why does he just pardon them after a while, let them out after a while? Let me see if there's some way I can I can re- reorient your thinking on this, and I, I struggle to do this. It, in my mind, it's clear, but I, I have a difficulty expressing this. For God, when we look at the character of God, he has many attributes. You know that. He, has, he is God of holiness, God of righteousness, God of love, a God of mercy, a God of grace, etc. For God to violate one of his attributes would be, it would be an impossibility, but even from a human standpoint, it would be, uh, it, it, it would be a, uh, a, a heinous thing. For example, let me just say it this way. Uh, for God to take someone, let's say God were to choose, for whatever reason, to take someone who has accepted Christ, someone who has received Christ, and arbitrarily say, I know you've received Christ, but I think I'm going to send you to hell anyway. 
I mean, that would be, it would, it's unthinkable, but that would be a heinous thing, right? Because that would be so unjust for God to do that. When he says, those who believe in my son and trust my son have eternal life. But listen, beloved, it would be just as unjust, just as heinous for God to let anyone into heaven who has not embraced his son. See, we don't see it that way. We can see how terrible it would be if God were to judge and condemn an innocent person, though there's no such thing. But theoretically, we see how terrible that would be, how heinous if God were to do something like that. But when we turn around and say, if God were to let someone into heaven just because he wanted to be nice about it, we don't see that as terrible. We should. Both would be a severe violation of God's character because he is a God of justice. He couldn't do either. Okay, understand. He can't do either. He could never condemn an innocent person. Neither can he acquit a guilty person. And so a person who is guilty before God and has loved darkness rather than light chooses to go to the place that Matthew 25, 41 says was created for the devil and his angels. So that's the best I can do in helping you understand the justice of God, of God in light of hell. Part of it involves a re orienting of our thinking, a readjusting of our thinking because we think too much on the human level and not maybe as we ought to think in relation to the character of God and his justice. All right, next question says this. um, Should a God-fearing single mother adopt a child? And I would answer that question by saying, I don't know if she should, but she certainly could. I think the way the question is asked is, is it okay? Or is there something wrong with that? Would there be something wrong with a God-fearing single mother adopting a child? So should she or could she are two different questions. Should she? Well, that depends on the, 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 the gal and a lot of circumstances. But could she without it being wrong or inappropriate? Absolutely. Absolutely. There are a lot of children. Now, of course, adoption agencies are often very hesitant about allowing that to happen. But there are a lot of children around the world who, if they could have a God-fearing single mother, they would be light years ahead of how they're going to be raised and the environment they're going to be in. So absolutely, there'd be nothing wrong with that for a God-fearing, a committed Christian single mother to adopt a child, especially if you could adopt one out of a place where in all likelihood they are going to be uh, neglected, maybe abused, maybe sold, or whatever. It would be a lifesaver for that child. Uh, next question, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, 2 Timothy 3. Verses 16 and 17, you all know these verses. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, or all Scripture is the breath of God. All Scripture is God-breathed, translated a lot of different ways. Is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped. Now here's the question. Does 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 apply to the New Testament as well as the Old Testament? Parentheses, if you will be addressing this in next Sunday morning's message, it can wait until then. Thank you very much. I will be addressing it, but just a couple comments. Uh, In answer to the question, does this apply to the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, the assumption behind that question, proper assumption, is that primarily, at least, Paul has in mind here the Old Testament when he refers, when he makes this statement, because that's what was in existence. However, that's not what was only in existence. Remember, 2 Timothy was the very last letter that Paul wrote, 
And so many books of the New Testament had been written by then. And so Paul's statement, which says all Scripture. So in other words, anything that is Scripture is inspired by God. So if it was New Testament Scripture, it was already written, then yes, this statement would apply to it. It is the very breath of God. Furthermore, as we'll see next week, you do have statements within the New Testament by the writers who recognize and acknowledge that the writings of the New Testament are Scripture. For example, as we'll see next Sunday morning in the text, uh, Peter refers to Paul's writings as Scripture. He says, Paul, our beloved brother, in his letters speaking of them in these things in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable twist as they do the other Scriptures. So he talks about Paul's writings, people twisting them as they twist other scriptures, which is saying Paul's writing is scripture. Here's another interesting one. Back up to 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17 says, uh, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of of his wages. You know what's fascinating about that? The first part of verse 18 is a quote out of the Old Testament. It's right out of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verse 4. So it's not surprising to hear Paul say the Scripture says. Here's the interesting thing. The next part, and the Scripture says the laborer is not worthy of his wages, I mean the laborer is worthy of his wages. The interesting thing about that is that is a statement recorded by Dr. Luke in Luke, the Gospel of Luke. And here Paul says, the Scripture says, and he quotes Luke, not merely an Old Testament passage. So, in answer to your question, does 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 apply to the New Testament as well as the... Absolutely it does, and it's not stretching it, trying to apply it sort of after the fact, because by the time 2 Timothy was written, not all the New Testament was written, but a large portion of it was written and was already being recognized as Scripture. And if something is Scripture, it is the breath of God. All right, next question says this. Uh, we don't have to turn to it because they, uh, they reference it here, but it says Genesis 3.24 uh, talks about the cherubim and the flaming sword outside, you know, at the garden. Are the cherubim and flaming sword still there? This is a little youngster who wonders, uh, are they still there? Could we go somewhere and find them? Maybe we're in the Middle East, wherever the Garden of Eden is or was. And the answer to that question is no, because you've got a major event just a few chapters later called the Flood. The worldwide flood that destroyed wherever the Garden of Eden was at the time. And uh, even when you read about some of the geography in Genesis, it's hard to know where the rivers that are talked about. And there's still some gold there, etc. You may remember that from Genesis 1 and 2, etc. The the worldwide flood had a major impact on the geography of the world, obviously. And so we would not assume that the cherubim and flaming sword are still somewhere in the Middle East by a garden to keep man from entering back in there. All right, next question says this. Uh, Hi, Pastor Brian. I had a question for Q&A. In Leviticus 19.28, it says, You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you. I am the Lord. How would that verse specifically, nor tattoo any marks on you, apply to us today? This is a really good question and a difficult question. Let me explain why. First of all, we are not under the Old Covenant. That is clear from so many passages in the New Testament. So therefore, uh, it's not good practice in Bible study or Bible interpretation or whatever to just grab a verse out of the Old Testament and try to assume it applies today. 
Because if you do that, basically what you end up doing is you're picking and choosing. Because when there's one that says, don't wear a garment with two types of material, you say, oh, that's ridiculous. I can wear 50% cotton, 50% polyester. There's no problem with that. But then the very next verse says, don't tattoo yourself. Well, that one applies. So, you know, you got so that's not, you got to have some consistency in your interpretation of Scripture. So, um, in one sense, you can say, well, this is part of the Old Covenant law. Scripture, New Testament is clear we're not under the Old Covenant, unless it's something reiterated in the New Covenant. Nine of the Ten Commandments, by the way, are reiterated in the New Testament. The only one that's not reiterated is the Sabbath command, which is not only not reiterated, it is actually repealed in the New Testament. Uh, so, if it's reiterated, then we know it's still binding today. However, what you do, or what you should do with a passage like this or others in the Old Testament, is ask the question, okay, is it reiterated? This one is not reiterated in the New Testament. Does that automatically mean it's not relevant? No, not necessarily. Because then the next question you want to ask is, are there any New Testament passages that are parallel or address similar things? In other words, if you look at, some people will say, well, God in the Old Testament was against homosexuality, but not in the New. Well, you have plenty of passages in the New Testament that say he's against it there. So you can't throw it out just because it was in the Old Testament. You don't have this one reiterated. However, you do have 1 Corinthians 6, which says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So my answer to your question would be, how would that verse specifically, how would it uh, apply to us today? It's part of the Old Testament law, not binding us on, on us today. It's not reiterated, so it's not a direct command. However, however, what you should think about what you should think about is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, therefore glorify God in your body. So what you do to your body, with your body, maybe it wouldn't even come into play with Leviticus 19.28, but maybe it comes into play with 1 Corinthians 6. So am I saying that that is a definitive statement that says if you put a tattoo of a butterfly on the you know, sole of your foot, you're in sin? No, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying you, you need to think through 1 Corinthians 6, and is there an abiding principle why God would say that that's reiterated in the New Testament? The verse is not reiterated in the New Testament. So it's not a directly binding statement. There may be principles, however, that come into play. That's what you have to wrestle through. All right, 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, verses 8 through 10. Here Paul talks about when the perfect comes, he says in verse 8, Love never ceases, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. We know in part, we prophesy in part. That which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Here's the question or questions. What does that which is perfect has come mean? Well, there are a variety of views. I don't have time to give all the supporting evidence. I can give it to you, whoever asked this, if you want it. But I personally believe that which is perfect is the eternal state. Okay, some people believe it's the Scripture, second coming. There are, there's evidence for all of those, obviously, or people wouldn't believe it. I think the most compelling evidence is that Paul is referring to the eternal state when we are, as he says later, face to face with Christ. So your next question, has it come? Obviously not. It hasn't come. What does or doesn't this indicate about tongues, prophecy, and knowledge? Well, this is a very complicated passage, but let me just see if in about a minute I can summarize it. Paul uses two different Greek verbs here to describe tongues, prophecy, and knowledge. He basically says this. Tongues will cease by themselves. T tongues will have already ceased by the time prophecy and knowledge are stopped. 
Prophecy and knowledge will be stopped when the perfect comes. That is the eternal state. We know there will be prophecy in the tribulation period. We know there will be prophesying in the millennial kingdom. Joel 2 talks about that. So prophesying won't be stopped until the eternal state. Knowledge won't be stopped. This is the gift of knowledge until the eternal state. But tongues, different verb, middle, tongues will cease by themselves before prophecy and knowledge have been stopped. So what does it indicate about tongues, prophecy, and knowledge? It indicates tongues will cease before prophecy and knowledge. They won't have to be stopped by the eternal state because they will have ceased by themselves, which of course begs the question, when I think you can give pretty compelling evidence for AD 70, judgment of Israel, according to 1 Corinthians 14, 22, tongues, a sign of impending judgment on the Jews, that judgment came in A.D. 70. So if someone asks me, can you give a date to the cessation of tongues? I, I can v- fairly comfortably say yes. I think A.D. 70, based on Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 14, 22. So if that is when tongues cease, the gift of tongues in A.D. 70, it will, long, it will have ceased long before prophecy and knowledge are stopped as being no longer necessary for use because we've come to the eternal state. Okay, last question tonight from a youngster. Uh, do you like donuts? I mean, that's what it says. That's the question. Do you, do you like donuts? Well, you know, 2 Corinthians 5 says, absent from the body is present with the Lord. Now, I'm getting, hold it. I'm going somewhere here. <laughs> absent from the body is present with the Lord, right? So when we die, we immediately go be with the Lord. Therefore, I do agree with the philosophy that says, don't eat anything that kills you slowly. All right? Just eat stuff that kills you quickly. Donuts fall into that category. Yes, I like donuts. All right? And if they kill me quickly, I'm with the Lord. All right? Let's stand as we close in prayer. All right? Father, thank you for our time together tonight to sing these songs uh, about your word and to look into your word, wrestle with these things. These are some great questions, certainly not easy answers. And And uh, we would never want to give the impression of giving simplistic answers to some of these things that deserve far more attention and time. But thank you for the opportunity to at least address and, and, and wrestle through out loud verbally some of these issues. Pray that your spirit would use it in a helpful way in our lives as we continue to do what Paul exhorted Timothy to do, to be diligent, to study, to show ourselves approved unto God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And may that, uh, may that be a goal of each of us in our walk with Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.